Welcome to episode 114 of The Roger Snipe Show. The Roger Snipes Show. Feeling stressed or want to feel more relaxed in a stressful situation? Well, Apollo Nero helps your body recover from stress so you can sleep better, focus and relax when you need it. It's a wearable device which you strap to your wrist like a watch or you can wear it around your ankle. It works by something called touch therapy, sending your body soothing vibrations, speaking to your nervous system, telling you you are in a safe environment. Now, this has been developed by neuroscientists and physicians and it's non-invasive. If you're about to go to a meeting and you're feeling a bit nervous, you can strap on the Nero to prime you for the meeting. If you have finished a training session and you need your body to wind down and recover, the Apollo Nero would come in very handy for that also. I personally let my six-year-old daughter use it just before she goes to school to prime her body for learning and before bed in the evening as she winds down and gets ready for sleep. To get your hands on one of these Apollo Nero devices, just visit Apollo Nero, which is spelled O-P-O-L-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com. ApolloNero.com and use code SNIPES10 for 10% off. It's time to get to know a more calmer, more mindful you. Now, most of us love carbohydrates, but what we don't like is when carbohydrates decide to stick to us and turn to fat. Restriction diets are no fun, and the crash you feel after a heavy carb binge leaves you feeling like trash. Check out Keon Lean. It's a natural supplement that helps support glucose metabolism and healthy blood sugar levels, allowing you to indulge a little without the stress of a crash and fat gain. Again, check out Keon Lean by visiting www.getkeon.com forward slash Roger Snipes and use coupon code SNIPES20 for 20% off. Yo, what's going on? What's going on? So it's been a little while since my last podcast. Um, <laughs> my bad. I need to um, actually start getting a lot more interviews done. Um, I've been so busy on so many projects, but a lot more is going to be coming. So um, bear with me. Bear with me. A lot of uh, good interviews to happen. And the person I have on today uh, goes by the name of Cynthia Tharlow. Uh, she's a nurse practitioner who is an intermittent fasting and nutrition expert. Um, yeah, we got talking via Twitter. Um, I saw a lot of her great tweets and I thought, I love what she does, all the information which she provides. And uh, it immediately made me a fan <laughs> of her work. So one of the things which I find interesting about Cynthia is she developed this intermittent fasting plan after enter entering her 40s and experiencing a health breakdown. 
Um, she now uses her knowledge to inform women of all ages to make good health choices. I find there are, there's a lot of advice for young women in their early 20s, which are more superficial and cosmetic. <laughs> um, I also find when you have extreme youth on your side, it's much easier to almost take advantage of life because your response to stress or inflammation is super quick <laughs> and is less, Im less impactful. Now, if people can focus on health early in their life, not only do they have a fighting chance to avoid the pitfalls of disease, but they can also thrive. There's more to life than training glutes. <laughs> Cynthia has written a book called Intermittent Fasting Transformation, which is currently on pre-order. It is a 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight and improve hormonal health and slow down aging. She is the CEO and founder of Everyday Wellness Project. And she's an international speaker with over 10 million views for her second TED Talk, Intermittent Fasting Transformation Technique. With over 20 years of experience in health and wellness, Cynthia is a globally recognized expert in intermittent fasting and nutritional health and has been featured on ABC, Fox 5, KTLA, CW, Medium, Entrepreneur, and The Megan Kelly Show. Her mission is to educate women on the benefits of intermittent fasting and overall holistic health and wellness so they feel empowered. Anyway, without further ado, let's bring on Cynthia Hello, Cynthia. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm tremendous. It's late afternoon time here, quarter past five. What time is it for you? It's 12.15, so I'm five hours behind you on the East Coast. Nice. Super early. So your day's sort of just starting, possibly? Yes, yes. Got a, a few more podcasts today and then I'm, I'm done. So uh, this is my, my first of a couple, but obviously starting the day off right, uh, connecting with you. Awesome. And you are a nurse practitioner, CEO, and founder of... Uh, Everyday Well Project? Was it Everyday Wellness Project? Is that right? Yes. Yes. It's kind of the umbrella organization for all my business entities. It's kind of one big happy family, but yeah, it's a play on uh, my podcast name. Okay. That's awesome. I know you're also a, an international speaker. And one thing I had noticed when I first found you on Twitter was that you had done some TED Talks and you've got uh, one particular TED talk, which reached about 10 million views, like 10 million must have been pretty good. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the irony is that right before I did that talk, I had was hospitalized first time in my adult life, other than when I had children and uh, part of my mental recovery from after being in the hospital for 13 days is that I still wanted to do this talk. 
And, you know, I think the universe is awfully very serendipitous, you know, the universe takes the universe gives. And so, yeah, it's uh, changed my life. Never realized that it was going to change my life as much as it did, but really it was a testament to showing my kids I was okay. That was really the intent I set when I got on stage at second time. That's incredible. Well, well done, by the way. Thank so um, how did your journey start? Like, yeah, what, what do you do and how is it you became where you are today? Great question. So I'm a traditional allopathic trained nurse practitioner. My background's in ER medicine and cardiology. And I did that for a long time, almost 20 years. And I, I just got to a point where I literally did not have a desire to write another prescription. As you can well imagine here in the United States, we're very symptom driven, prescription driven culture. And so I, I kept saying to my husband, you know, over the course of having children, having child with life-threatening food allergies, I started to look more closely at nutrition, the role of how important nutrition was. And yet we weren't making it a priority with our patients. We were telling them exercise more, eat less, calories in, calories out, all sorts of things that I later came to really um, think less of. And so I took a leap of faith. Literally, I woke up one morning and told my husband I couldn't couldn't write another prescription, that I really needed to do something else. I didn't have a business plan. I dove into the entrepreneurial world without a business coach, business plan, or anything. I don't recommend that people do this, but certainly for myself, I had, I had a lot of confidence. I kept saying, I know I'm going to be successful. There was no question that would be successful. And almost instantaneously, I started attracting a certain type of client, and that went into developing one-on-one programs and group programs and doing a lot of public speaking, which is something I'd always enjoyed. And then in 2018, I said to my husband, you know, I, I think, I think I need to do a Ted talk largely because as an introvert, I wanted to challenge myself and that seemed like a good thing to do. And so the, the desire to do one talk, I was offered my first in Toronto and around the same time I was offered my second, which is the one that you were alluding to earlier. And fast forward three months after that, I, I gave my second Ted talk, but right behind it, 27 days after I got out of the hospital, I gave that talk. And so not realizing that the decision to do the talk on intermittent fasting would also coincide with the most Googled topic as it related to nutrition for all of 2019. So within a week, I had a million views on that talk. And obviously it changed the trajectory of everything. It really uh, put me in a position where I could continue doing the things I love, which was impacting more people, impacting more lives, having more opportunities to speak on stages, which I really love, and then continue to evolve the podcast that I had created a few years before. So that's like in a snapshot what's happened over the last several years, but definitely leaving clinical medicine was a huge, a huge uh, impetus for growth. And I, I'm a huge believer that through you know, adversity comes opportunity. And, and I think throughout my lifetime, I've really demonstrated that. I think when we stay, when we play safe and we stay safe, um, we don't grow. And so I, I think it's important for us as individuals to really make sure we continue to push ourselves intellectually and otherwise. And one way to do it is get out of your comfort zone. And that's definitely the way I, I choose to live my life for sure. You must have studied a lot to do with medicine, I'd assume. How, how many years did you, did you study? Well, so it's interesting. My first undergraduate degree was not in nursing. And here in the United States, you have to have a, a bachelor's in nursing to go on and do advanced practice nursing. So I did four years of undergrad, two years of pre-med work, 
Then I applied to a program at Johns Hopkins, was accepted to an undergrad and then a grad program. So I think when you add all of that together, I mean, you're probably talking about 12 years of education. So it was a lot, but I love to learn. And so when I got out at the ripe old age of 29, I was very ready to uh, start making some money. And so I I did that for a long time, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, I, I think medicine is a calling. I think people that want to serve others in that capacity. It really is something that is fervently part of your soul and who you are. And I'm so glad that I went that direction and not becoming an attorney. I have a lot of friends who are attorneys and don't love their work or they work exceedingly long hours. So I I definitely ended up in the right place. Yeah. A lot of education. You're not for sure. A ton of education. So most of the, let's say nutritional advice, which you give is it's more kind of holistic, would you say? I would, I would definitely say so. I did uh, along the journey, I did actually a functional and nutrition program. And that was such a strong departure from what I was trained in, which was my plate and USDA food guide pyramid and all <laughs> sorts of other, you know, fat is bad, sugar is benign, you know, eat heart healthy grains. And I, I would argue that that kind of misinformation is really not just the United States, but most Westernized countries has really contributed to the degree of metabolic inflexibility and obesity and inflammation and all these issues related to metabolic health and, and being in cardio, working in cardiology, I saw it day in and day out. And so, you know, for me, I, I would be the first person to say it all starts with food. And that's why it's so important for us to be conscientious about the food choices that we make. And so that wasn't a particularly sexy topic for the cardiologists I worked with. They kind of put up with me. They're like, this is cute. You know, our, our nurse practitioner thinks it's really cute to talk about food. And I kept saying, you're missing the point. If we could get people to eat less often, if we could get them to eat, you know, more nutrient dense foods, less processed foods, heck, how about we just get them to eat less carb, you know, processed carbs. I mean, that would be a huge improvement. Uh, but that is, that tends to be, you know, it's a degree of cognitive dissonance. There are a lot of people that just aren't willing, ready, or able to, you know, move away from focusing on bread and pasta and rice and instead, you know, focusing on a sweet potato and some low glycemic berries and a steak uh, would be a much better choice, but it it takes time. And oftentimes I feel that when people are making those kinds of changes or they're receptive to doing it, it's oftentimes because they've either had a family member get sick or they themselves have gotten sick or sick and fed up with their own circumstances. And then they have a powerful impetus to enact change. And so I, I think on so many levels, if we start with food and lifestyle medicine, we're going to be a much healthier population, but that's not oftentimes what we're telling our patients. And that's where the disconnect comes because there's, there's people that are still very fixated on calories in calories out. They don't want to think about the hormone piece. They don't want to think about metabolic health. And so I I think slowly there are a large group of us as healthcare professionals that are starting to, to change that, but it definitely is not without a lot of resistance for sure. Yeah. Um, wow. So, so true. I'm just thinking to myself, like you spent many, many years looking into uh, medicine and now you kind of deal more on functional health. It made me question, would you say that some of those years was wasted or would you say it was all definitely worth it? Would you have made any differences to some of the things that you'd studied considering what you're doing now? Um, well, I think there's a lot of things. So I got married, um, in my early thirties and had kids and, you know, when you have young children, you're really focused on them. And I don't think I would have had the bandwidth to think outside of 
what I'd been trained in, but I just started seeing consistent patterns that weren't making sense to me. And I, I was trained uh, at a university system that taught us to think, I mean, really critically think. And I was raised by parents who taught me to question things. And so it just, it, it was a degree of unease. You know, obviously if I didn't have uh, children, I might've, um, you know, made those, those changes earlier. No, I, I, I'm a big believer in that all of our experiences are what drive us forward. And so I, I think I wasn't ready to take a leap of faith. I, I don't think I would have, it's not that I lack the confidence. I, I just didn't, I wasn't fed up enough. I had to get to a point where I just said, I can't do this anymore. The system is broken. It's not working. Uh, I, I think I had to have those years of working in ER medicine as a nurse and then working as a nurse practitioner in cardiology to feel like I got to a point where I was just fed up. I was like, okay, we need to do something different. This is not working. I want to meet, I want to be able to impact more lives than the 15 people I see in clinic or the 20 patients I see in the hospital every day and my colleagues. And that was a hard decision to make because I love being a nurse practitioner. I love helping people and I still can do that, but in a very different way. And now I get to have the opportunity to influence policy and influence other providers and inspire other providers, as well as, you know, people in the lay public, men and women. That's a really cool thing about social media is that you have the ability to interact with hundreds of thousands of people in positive ways. Like I know we were talking before we started recording that, you know, from my perspective, um, I don't get on, on social media to argue with people. I am happy to present information. I'm there to educate, inspire, and empower. I'm not there to argue and I'm not there to berate and I'm not there to be a troll. Although there are plenty of those out there, as I'm sure, you know, as well, uh, it, life's too short. So I really do believe that I had to go through all, like all of these experiences to get fed up enough to leave. Um, and, and the sad thing is, and I tell people this all the time, it was really hard to leave for a number of reasons, largely because I had such great colleagues, but also because they kept offering me like an even better job. Like we'll let you have a more flexible schedule. We'll give you no weekend or no call. I mean, it was just, they tried to make it even better. And I just said, it's not you, it's me. This is all me. I acknowledge that I'm at a point, I'm just not growing intellectually anymore. And that for me, for anyone that's listening, I mean, we all need to be growing intellectually in our lives and it might look a little different for each one of us. But for me, I'm never going to be someone that's going to allow my intellectual growth to be stunted or feel like it's not being nurtured. I, that would, that, that's fundamentally who I am as an individual. Maybe when I was younger, I, I thought it was too nerdy to admit that. But now that I'm older, I could care less. I'm like, this is who I am. This is, you know, this is what I represent. I'm proud of who I am. I do like to learn. I will, I will be intellectually curious till the day I die. That's just part of who I am. That's great. That's great. I, I don't know if a lot of people are like that. Some people just will probably stay for the money. <laughs> a lot yeah. of people do that. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, my husband wasn't happy when I jumped, <laughs> when I left my job, because I went from having a, a job with pay to no job. And, well, no, well, I had a job, but then I had no pay. Yeah. Uh, so I just said, you know, have faith. And he gave me, you know, gave me a, a, an amount of time in which I had to become profitable, which was completely reasonable. And, you know, yeah. I've done that and then some, but yeah, I, I think for a lot of people, it's easier to stay in inertia. It's easier to stay stuck. It's easier to stay where it's comfortable than it is to do what makes us uncomfortable. And growth is where, is, is where and when you become uncomfortable. It's the only way to grow. That's it. That's it. So you work with men and women, but you do have a lot of women that follow you, a lot of women that um, are inspired by you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say is your niche thing for women to help them improve their overall health and lifestyle? Yeah, well, well, initially I, I worked with men and women and then it, it sort of evolved into the consistent theme I was getting was this is a woman north of 35 who feels stuck, invisible and unappreciated. And so that became this niche, which really encompasses, you know, perimenopause and menopausal women who just feel largely underrepresented. And so that's where that started from um, on so many levels. Uh, you know, unfortunately, whether it's the way westernized societies are, we're very ageist focused and, you know, we want to focus on young women and contraception and pregnancy and the postpartum period. And then there's this kind of nebulous period where women aren't as, aren't as focused on appropriately. So they're raising families. And then, you know, the, the next stage of life, women spend 40% of their lifetime in menopause. And so I tell people all the time that, you know, you, you don't die, you don't fall off a cliff when that happens. So unknowingly, that was not what I expected. But the fasting piece, I myself had started fasting prior to leaving clinical medicine. And so that just evolved into a part of the work that I was doing with women, I would kind of weave it in when it was appropriate and create programs around it. And then I never expected, uh, you know, that that second TED talk I gave initially, it was just supposed to be gender neutral talking about fasting. And then they came back to me and said, there's really a desire to have a, a women's focused talk. And so that was the bucket I got placed in. That's, that's now, um, that's now what people know, know me for. And so I always laugh and say, I never would have guessed that, that a topic that I literally picked just like that, like said to my husband, what do I know a lot about? Cause you can't do two Ted talks about the same subject. And he said, intermittent fasting, it was that easy. I mean, that's, as, I didn't spend hours and days and months thinking about my topic. It was that easy. And then being asked to be gender specific uh, is not what I had anticipated I would be known for. So it was a delightful surprise. It's one that I'm, I'm grateful for, but that appears to be the platform I'm standing on that and really talking about the role of hormones, which is for many people is a fascinating subject because we don't talk enough about it, but the role of lifestyle medicine and how that influences your success with balancing your hormones, sleep and stress management, Probably a lot of things that you talk about, you know, even gains in the gym are all are, are largely hormonally mediated. And for women it can be a little different. You know, women worry so much as an example about getting too big. And I remind them like physiologically, unless we are taking exogenous, uh, you know, steroids, we are not going to get as big as men. Um, that's just physiologically impossible because we don't have as much circulating testosterone and growth hormone and a few other things. So yeah, I, I feel like I'm, I'm in a niche area that I did not originally anticipate, but for which I'm very grateful for because women feel like they now have a platform. They have someone that as, along with other colleagues that are in the space, they have a platform with which, uh, you know, healthcare professionals will talk about the subjects that maybe they're embarrassed to talk about. They're uncomfortable talking about, um, you know, when a woman tells me she feels invisible and she's 45 years old, I mean, that just breaks my heart. I mean, no one should feel invisible. So it gives you a sense of not even on a societal level, but also on a medical level, they feel like their needs are really not being met. And maybe they don't have great support at home is another lingering, lingering piece to that. But yes, um, not anticipate. You know, with the not feeling seen, like, is it, is it something like, um, what, like in their workplace or, um, yeah, like, (laughs) 
love at home? Like what, what sort of way do they feel because they're of that age? It's as you said, like, okay, I've been written off now. (laughs) I think there's, I think there's a lot of that. I I think if if someone's secure in who they are, they're in a healthy relationship, they have a good relationship with others. I think it's probably a little bit different, but I think for anyone who has spent their lifetime being admired or respected for what they look like, And then all of us, if we live long enough, we're going to get older, we're going to age, we're going to look different. Uh, I think they are the women that struggle the most. And and I do see quite a bit of that. And and I think it's unfortunate. You know, we have to, at some point, we have to accept that aging is inevitable. That doesn't mean that you have to accept, you know, dealing with a lot of inflammation and weight gain, but we are going to get wrinkles. We are going to look a little different. Things may not be in the position they were at 20 when you're 45, 50 or 60, but I feel like for a lot of the women, when they say they're invisible, it's on every level. They feel maybe they're not happy in their occupation. Maybe they don't have a great connection with their partner. Maybe their kids are getting older and they don't feel as needed. Maybe their parents are getting older and they feel another sense of responsibility. And then the changes that occur, not just in women, but in men's bodies too. You just kind of look at yourself and go, what in the world is happening? Oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I think it's, it's definitely one of those things. It's very humbling, but this is again, why I tell women, you have to have a purpose. You can't just, you know, bumble through life and say, I'm going to be a sex pot till the day I die. I mean, let's be realistic. You know, (laughs) women like between like 20 and 30 look a certain way. And then, and then, you know, our bodies change as we get older and that's not a negative thing. I think if anything, the age I'm at, the stage I'm at, I care a whole lot less about what other people think. I, I know I'm a good person. I put good content out there. I'm there to help people, but you know, I I will shut people down in a heartbeat. Like I told my team, we were talking about someone, some troll that was on Instagram. And I said, don't even interact, just block, block and release. Just, you know, don't even waste your time. There's no point in even interacting with someone like that. I'm sure that happens to you as well, but you just, occasionally you will cross paths with people that you just think, wow, you know, just if I think I'm having a bad day and I look at someone else, I go, you know, I could be like that and just be a, sorry, just be in a really not so great place intellectually, emotionally, maybe financially, and you're taking it out in the world. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's unfortunate, but there are a lot of people out there like that. Mm. It seems to me like, almost like you uh, give a little bit of um, um, emotional help, psychological help to, uh, females as well. Would you say, um, do you give them, would you say much of it is from nutrition as well, which is the reason they're feeling the way they are, or is it personal circumstances or combination? I think it's, I mean, I think that's a really good question. I think it's a variety of things, but I, I think on every level, you know, the foods we choose to eat influence neurotransmitters in our gut, they influence the gut microbiome, they influence hormonal regulation. So when I say it all starts with food, I do think that's important. When I talk about a nutrient dense diet, you know, eating a steak is going to be far better than eating a McDonald's hamburger and a bunch of fries with, uh, you know, a bunch of seed oils and processed God knows what. So, yeah, I mean, but it's interesting, even on Twitter is a good example. I recognize that my role is you know, I'm a nurturer by nature. So a lot of the support it's that I give people, whether it's men or women on social media, it's really, I'd rather be a cheerleader than someone who's negative and brings people down. But I do think that there's a variety. I mean, there's certainly a psychological component. There's a spiritual component. 
Uh, there's obviously, you know, my medical brain is always kind of looking at things uniquely. And I think that all comes together, but certainly a service to others in, in one capacity or another. But I think, you know, everyone's got their role to play, whether you're like the jokester or you're like super serious. I mean, some people are so dogmatic and so granular and they want to argue about everything. And I just think, you know, I, I use the term bio-individuality, but I genuinely believe that each one of us has a unique type of composition, whether it's mentally, spiritually, emotionally. And so what might work for you nutrition wise may not work for another gentleman, similar age, similar build, same thing with myself. Like I always say experiment and, and people are very uncomfortable with that. They want to be told what to do. They don't want to think for themselves. And that's a whole separate conversation, but I encourage people to try different things. Like maybe carnivore works for you for two weeks to get your gut inflammation down. And then you transition to uh, you know, a, a lower carb diet. And then maybe, you know, you get bored and you feel like you want to try a plant-based diet for a week. You know, I'm, I'm completely supportive as long as people are eating nutrient dense foods, that's really the key. But most people are not eating enough protein. They're eating too many carbs, the wrong carbs, too many, of the wrong fats. And, and that definitely doesn't contribute to health that ends up putting you in that bucket of being metabolically unhealthy, which I, I'm sure you see it in in the UK as well. I mean, most of the people, um, when I travel, I'm, I'm oftentimes surprised. I forget how obese Americans are. And then I travel abroad and I'm like, wow, they're really obese because people <laughs> elsewhere, no, and I'm being serious. I mean, it, there was a study in university of North Carolina, Chapel Hill from 2018 to four years ago, pre-pandemic. And they were talking about 80.2% of the population's metabolically unhealthy. And that was then, and I'm sure it's no better now. I mean, they, were, they joked about COVID-19 or the 19 pounds people gained with COVID. I was like, that's not a joke. I mean, that's just indicative of, of people feeling helpless and feeling they don't have any other options. And that's really unfortunate. Um, so yeah, I, I think a lot of what I talk about starts with food, but it, it bleeds into everything else because food isn't just, ner- it isn't just intrinsic micro and macronutrients. It's also for a lot of people, there's an emotional component. I'm sure you see it in your business as well, that for a lot of people, food is comfort. And if that's, if that's your relationship with food, it makes it more challenging. I think every human being, sorry, every human being has built some sort of relationship with food and it stems normally from childhood. And it's quite interesting because if you get rewarded with food or alcohol mm-hmm. and it just becomes habit yeah. you know throughout the years this is what we do you know i'm celebrating so i'm gonna drink yeah and um yeah or or it, even like children oh you've done so well here's some sweets and as you get older those sweets progress into bigger stuff. You don't have like one boiled sweet anymore, do you? <laughs> no, I mean, I have teenage boys and I can tell you that, you know, that one, one plays lacrosse and football, the other one's a competitive swimmer. They're very active. They're very lean and healthy. And I laugh because I was trying to tell someone they both love ice cream. Like that's their thing. And so once a week, as you can imagine, two teenage boys, a half gallon of ice cream does not go very far, but they race to see who can finish it first. And I just tell them like, guys, this is not, you know, I don't want you to not enjoy having a sweet treat once a week, but good Lord. I mean, they are in a race to finish it as quickly as they possibly can. But I tell them, you know, you can do that now, but 20 years from now, you might not be able to do that. (laughs) So 
you know, your, your metabolism will change, you know, your physiology will change. Hopefully you will remain healthy throughout your lifetime. But I agree with you that, that, that message that we send our children, if we're rewarding them with food, as opposed to, you know, praising them and then taking them out to get a, a book or taking them to a movie. I mean, it definitely drives that home. I was raised by an Italian mother and Italians, like a lot of cultures, food is love, mm. but I'm grateful that my mother, you know, other than the crazy things that she had us doing uh, when I was growing up, this is way before people were eating organ meats and other sorts of things. That was something she did normally on the regular but I always say that the things I was grateful for, yes, my mother was, was a great cook, but she emphasized things that are sustainable, like making sure we had a salad with our meals, making sure we had fresh vegetables with every meal, making sure we had protein we ate a variety of protein. Um, and also, you know, not being food fixated, like her father had made her feel very ashamed of her weight. And my parents um, always did a really good job of making sure my brother and I had a, a pretty healthy relationship with food. But I know not everyone grows up in, in situations like that where they may eat out of comfort because they're trying to self-soothe or maybe there's been some degree of abuse or you know, unknowingly parents you know, get rewarding their kids with sugar. I mean, I know when my kids were younger in like elementary school and or primary school and every party was just full of so much crap and sugar. And I used to say all the time, like, why do kids need to have, uh, you know, a bag of Cheetos and a Gatorade after 20 minutes of running up and down a soccer field? Or why do we have to make every holiday party all about sugar? Like it was like, they're going to have hot cocoa and they're going to have, they're going to make this elaborate Christmas tree that they can take home and eat. And then there was just more crap and junk everywhere they went. I was like, sugar just infiltrates our lives. And we think of it as being so benign and it really isn't. I know. It's wild. Even in my daughter's school, she's seven. And I remember she went to a school club and she she took she took the food home with her because she didn't eat it there. It was in a, a brown paper bag. And I was shocked. I was just shocked. There was some wrapped up uh, pizza in plastic. Pizza wrapped in plastic. Yeah. Um crisps or chips as you guys call it um and there was some some drink with a synthetic sweetener um i think it had um uh a sulfame potassium sweetener in there for kids yum, yum. um and some some boiled sweets and some other stuff i can't remember but it was just all garbage and i was like are they trying to murder the kid? Like, what are they trying to do to the kids? I know. I, I was pointed. I, I was like, do you know what? Next day, I'm I'm making you some stuff to eat. There, yeah. you're not you're not eating this garbage. Yeah. And she was upset because you know all the kids are eating it. You know. But, well, yeah. and the one the one thing for me that was interesting, my older son who does have food allergies that are very well controlled, thankfully, he didn't like eating school lunch because every once in a while he would want to eat the school lunch. Otherwise it was packed for him, but he would come home and it would upset his stomach. And it was because it was so highly processed, so carbohydrate fixated, like the photos here in the United States of what is considered to be a, a school meal is so devoid of nutrients. And, you know, they'll give them like chicken nuggets and mac and cheese and then they'll give them some sugar yogurt and then chocolate milk. And you're, and I'm looking at my child, like wondering why he doesn't want to eat that. Cause it gives him digestive upset. He'd rather eat the way he does at home. And even now as a high school, like I have a high schooler and a middle schooler, 
they bring their lunches because they don't want to eat what's at school and they just know it doesn't make them feel good. They can't power through a workout. They don't feel good when they do it. And so I love that at a young age, your daughter is, you know, learning, you know, what real food looks like, but that's oh, the unfortunate yeah. thing is that we assume anything that's in a box, a bag or a can is healthy. And it's usually completely the antithesis of that. Yeah. What's your thoughts on uh, intermittent fasting for kids? Not a fan because they're growing. I always say like, once you're done growing, you know, once you have reached full maturity and, and for some individuals, uh, you know, the young women in particular, they may stop growing when they're 12, 13 or 14, when they start getting their menstrual cycle, but certainly young men can grow in their early twenties. Now, do I think that there's value in low carb for some people that are obese or insulin resistant? Yes. And there's studies going on in children right now, obviously in a controlled environment that I think is reasonable, especially if someone's dealing with some metabolic issues. Yeah. Fasting for kids. For that, like metabolic issues. They say they're overweight. Yeah. Um, in, in a, in a controlled environment, I think that's certainly reasonable, but, um, everything that I've looked at, if kids are growing, you don't want to restrict their, their macro intake. I mean, that could be detrimental. And, and I think about, you know, there are, there were studies done, um, you know, during world war two on, on individuals who had by the fact there was a gross famine, um, some places in Europe where they had no access to food and the epigenetic changes that occurred so that subsequent generations still dealt with health issues because, you know, a, a young woman wasn't getting enough nourishment, a young man wasn't getting enough nourishment that, you know, that then propagates into the next population. So I, I think it's, it's important to kind of designate, like when you have stopped growing or fully mature, then I think fasting is a great strategy. If you are, you know, a, a teen or a young adult, I think low carb, if it's supervised or you know how to do it properly for a lot of people can get, get their, their life back on track. But for so many people that are, you know, insulin resistant, you know, the degree of type two diabetes, which is really a lifestyle issue, uh, it used to just be a disease of adults. And now we see it in children and, and you have to understand that it's not the child that's driving that problem. It's that they probably have parents who are insulin resistant or diabetic making food choices that are contributing to their ill metabolic health and then their children's. And so uh, really kind of leaning into that, I think is important, but that's a good question. I do get asked that frequently, oftentimes mm -hmm. by teenagers <laughs> right. who want to know if they can, if they can fast. And I always say when you're done growing, yes. <laughs> so for them, it's probably just better food choices. And then at a later stage, um yeah look into that okay and it's hard it's hard when they're teenagers to change the way they eat because it's heavily influenced by their peers like i know even with my kids my older son who plays football they have team dinners before games and i have to bite my tongue when i help out at those team dinners because most of the time it's crap and garbage that they're being fed like local businesses will generously donate food and i just have to bite my kids are always like please don't say anything <laughs> yeah, yeah. please don't say anything i'm like i'll be the mom that brings the big salad and tries to give the kids some salad uh amidst all the you know the stuff that's probably gonna not do a whole lot for their their performance on the field for sure <laughs> and uh intermittent fasting for women obviously that's something you specialize in um there's lots of mixed reviews on that but obviously you've got strength in this area so what would you say to those that are unsure like you've got women who might be unsure about 
uh, intermittent fasting because they feel it might interfere with their hormones and that sort of thing. What information well, give them? Yeah, and I think it's important for to women to know they need to fast differently than men. So I would say first the caveat is men and postmenopausal women. So women who haven't been getting a menstrual cycle for twelve months are in a different category. But for women that are still at peak fertile years that are still getting their menstrual cycle, and perimenopausal women, women that are five to ten years out from menopause they have to fast around their cycle. And so when we talk about balancing hormones, uh, which is a big subject, we're talking about that. It's, it's really speaking to, you know, can we balance um, insulin? So when insulin levels are low, our body can tap into fat stores and we do that by eating less often. And I do think that's a good strategy for most adults for a variety of reasons. Um, really the way to navigate that is to know that there are certain times in your menstrual cycle when you can fast pretty easily. And then times when you should not. And I do look at sleep quality and stress management and your macros. Like, what are you eating? Like I mentioned earlier, most people eat too little protein and too many carbs. And so you have to kind of reverse that, you know, increase your protein, stop snacking, um, stop eating crappy carbs. And for people that can take a while, if they've been going through years and years and years of having chips and bread and pasta and rice, every single meal, it can, you know, put a wrench in their perspectives on food. I do think women can fast. I do think it is a good practice. I think there are a lot of caveats. Um, obviously if you're pregnant or breastfeeding or you're underweight, or certainly if women have a distorted relationship with food, so they have a history of binge eating, anorexia or bulimia, probably not a great strategy unless you're working with a really talented therapist who can walk you through that. Obviously, if someone is you know, under, here we use body mass index, but if someone's really thin, you don't wanna be fasting. I see a lot of fit pros, female fit pros in particular that will hide their eating disorder in their intermittent fasting. You know, let's say I intermittent fast. I'm thinking, you know, I don't get the sense you actually eat. Um, <laughs> so I think it's really important to be very clear, like what are your goals? And if most people are metabolically inflexible and either overweight or obese, even if they're younger women, they can benefit from even 12 hours of digestive rest. Again, you know, the benefits are when you are not eating your body eventually we'll get to a point it'll use fats as a fuel source, as opposed to carbohydrates. And, you know, fat adaptation is, is something that I find endlessly fascinating, but if you look back generationally over how humans have evolved, if we weren't able to go without food, we would not have survived. You know, there was famine and then there was feasting. And sometimes the famine lasted a whole lot longer than the feasting did. And so our bodies are innately capable of going without food, but we're in a culture, hedonistic culture, where we have accessibility to everything 24 seven. And, you know, it endlessly surprises me how many people like don't know how to cook. Um, they just order out all the time. And I remind people like one of the best things you can do, irrespective of whether or not you fast is just to learn how to cook. Because if you can cook for yourself, you're more going to be more inclined to make healthy food, you're gonna be more interested in eating healthy food as opposed to if you're eating in a restaurant three meals a day, who knows what you're eating, you know, if you're not doing the cooking. So I, I do fervently believe that fasting is a great strategy for women, always in the context of acknowledging that, that fasting is a hormetic stressor. It's a beneficial stressor, but it has to be the right stressor in the right amount at the right time. So really leaning into if you're getting five hours a night of sleep and you're stressed at the max, you're going through a divorce, probably not the right time to fast, but if you are sleeping well, you manage your stress, you're not over exercising. 
Um, you know, you're in a position where you need to lose 10 or 15 pounds. I think fasting is a great strategy, but it always has to be taken into the context of what's your lifestyle, you know, what are, what are the stressors going on? A really good example of, you know, people that shouldn't be fasting just situationally, or if you're going through a divorce, if you're going through a, like a stressful move, if you have a death in the family or you've recently been hospitalized, I can assure you when I was hospitalized for 13 days uh, in 2019, I did not fast for a couple months because I just didn't have, I, I literally could not stabilize my blood sugar because I had lost so much weight um, and not, you know, healthy weight. It was like, I lost all this muscle mass. I literally went into the hospital with some muscle mass and left with none. Cause that's what my body used to, to break down, to feed my, to feed my sick self. So I, I think you really have to look at the context of the individual and what their goals are and just really get honest and granular about your circumstances. Same thing goes for men. I'm sure there are men out there. I don't see as many of them that uh, situationally shouldn't be fasting, but most people do really well. In fact, I got my husband on board and he fasts like every day, like 18 or 19 hours, just effortlessly. Like he's like a duck to water. Once I like gave him the basics, he loves it. He goes the whole morning, you know, has some green tea, breaks his fast around noon, eats a big sandwich. And yes, everyone in my house is not, I'm gluten-free, no one else in my house is, but eats a big sandwich and then goes back up and does his work and then eats a big dinner. And that's like all he has all day long. It's fascinating. Mm, mm. Yeah, I've been fasting for probably about four years now. It's pretty standard. Sometimes I almost forget to eat. I'm like, oh my God, yeah. I better eat quickly. Um, exactly. And so you're cool. a muscular guy, so you're able to build. So this is something that's key you know, people ask all the time, can I build muscle and fast? And I always say, yes, you can. And you're a great example. You're very muscular, you know, probably mesomorph, um, easily build muscle, maintain muscle while fasted. So you're a great example of that men can do this and build muscle. Yeah. Yeah. It increases uh, growth hormone by stupid amount of percent as well. And that's why sleep is so important. If you want to build muscle, you got to sleep, got to get protein. That's the other thing. Mm -hmm. I always say to people, you got to have enough stimulus. So you got to lift heavy things. You have to eat enough protein and then you need to get high quality sleep. And those three things work for men and for women, but women are the ones that usually skimp on the protein for a variety of reasons. Can women do like a three day fast? Is that something that is recommended every once in a while? And what type of woman or if uh -huh. not, why not? Yeah, it's interesting. Ted Naiman uh, did some content. He's a physician here in the, in the States. And I think it's the law of diminishing returns. I think if you're pretty lean, I'm not sure how much benefit you get out of longer fasts, longer meaning like 24 hours or, or longer. But if most people are obese or overweight, you can absolutely positively get benefits because you're going to get upregulation and autophagy, the waste recycling process, you're going to get more growth hormone. You're going to get these counter-regulatory hormones that will, you know, suppress your hunger cues. Um, you definitely get more stem cell activation with the longer fast, more digestive rest. So I think it's always in the context. What are your goals? Who are you? I can assure you since 2019, I have not done any really long fast because I had a 13 day fast that I did not want. Um, <laughs> so since then I don't go more than 24 hours. And I think some of it's mental at this point, but I think you always have to be thinking if you're already lean, I don't know how much extra long fasting I would be um, necessarily recommending, but I do know as an example, like Simlad, who's this incredibly brilliant young man that's from Estonia. He uh, is just so bright. 
and he's really lean. And I think he does a couple like longer fast during the year, but just a couple. So I don't think longer fast or lean people need to be something you're doing all the time. I think they can be helpful for plateau busting as I'm sure you probably have people that come to you that are stuck. Um, I do think they can be helpful for that, but always in the context of just like, what's realistic you know, are we pushing the envelope for a lot of my, my clients, they're wearing glucometers or using continuous glucose monitors. And I always tell them that, you know, when we're fasting, we want to make sure it's not too much stress to the body. So if you're getting these exaggerated, you know, glucose responses or blood sugar responses, it can be a sign that your body is telling you to back off. So you really have to lean into what your body is trying to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. There's a guy called, uh, Ben, uh, not just Ben is Dr. Ben Bickman. He talks a lot about insulin and he mentions it would be more useful to have like a, an, like an insulin monitor than a glucose monitor. Cause it, it, it's better to understand how your body responds to insulin. Um, I can't remember how he put it, but he said it's, it's more efficient in understanding how your body is working. But he said, those are too expensive at the moment. Yeah. Ben is amazing. I've had the uh, true honor of having him on the podcast twice and he's an insulin researcher for anyone that's not familiar with him. He has a great book called why we get sick. I recommend it a lot. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, fasting insulin is oftentimes the first blood biomarker that will get dysregulated. So, you know, kind of a traditional allopathic medicine model will look at fasting glucose and hemoglobin A1C. And I tell people all the time, you got to look at the fasting insulin. And so that can oftentimes uncover like people that are getting closer to becoming more insulin resistant, which obviously we don't want. We want that insulin sensitivity to be up and, and his work is brilliant. He takes complicated concepts and makes them very accessible. And so I think that really speaks to the brilliance that is Ben Bickman. Um, you know, he really does a great job, has a fantastic, um, you know, his IG, he does some IG videos and like will break down research. And so if anyone's interested in like learning more about insulin research, he has definitely got me on board with the whole hormone hypotheses for what drives uh, all these, you know, disorders, you know, obviously in cardiology, I was treating hypertension or high blood pressure all the time. And now recognizing it's not related to salt, it's related to insulin resistance and how important it is for people to really work much more diligently at the lifestyle piece so that they're less prone to these metabolic diseases, which, you know, I'll be the first person to say no one wants these things, but you look at like PCOS and infertility and can be male or female factor. It's not just one or the other, um, as well as like high blood pressure and diabetes, et cetera, can all be, you know, correlated with insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Big shout out, big shout out. What's your thoughts on alcohol? Do you recommend it, it in any way? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the person. I mean, for full disclosure during COVID with no socializing, um, I was never much of a drinker anyway. My husband would have a drink on Friday or Saturday night and I just cut it out because I didn't, I stopped feeling good if I had a glass of wine or a martini, it would drop my blood sugar and I just didn't feel good, it made me sleepy. Um, I think alcohol in the context of a healthy lifestyle, if it's moderated, I think there's a huge wine drinking culture here in the States with women. And I think a lot of it's like blowing off steam that they drink wine to moderate the things they can't deal with in their personal lives, or it's a way of decompressing or de-stressing or falling asleep at night. And so I think that people that are metabolically healthy will, will be able to manage and mitigate alcohol intake much more easily than those that are unhealthy. 
And we know that alcohol as an example is processed first in the liver as a toxin. So if you're eating, you know, you're at a party and you're eating, drinking alcohol and eating food, uh, recognizing your body is going to prioritize getting rid of the alcohol and it's going to largely take the food that you're eating and put it into storage. So it's the acknowledgement that most of us don't make good food choices when we're drinking alcohol, because we are not going to crave the broccoli. We're going to crave something hyper palatable and salt, you know, usually salty and you know, things that are designed to, to light up our taste buds. But the other piece is we know that alcohol can also dysregulate melatonin. So it can be harder to fall asleep, stay asleep. It'll upregulate cortisol, another hormone, which can make us wide awake, you know, kind of wired and tired. And we also know that it does have a net negative impact on our blood sugar. But I don't recall in my 20s and 30s ever, ever, ever thinking about having a glass of wine or a martini and ever having any issues. It was really when I got into my early forties that I noticed alcohol and I just didn't agree with one another anymore. And that seems to be the case for a lot of women. I can't speak to men per se, because I, I don't have a lot of male friends or male family members that admit to that same issue. But I know for a lot of women, alcohol can be problematic. Now, when we're thinking about healthier options, I would say like organic wine, if that's an option for you, because they're wine in general, it's very pesticide laden because of what's sprayed on the, the grapes, but looking at clear liquors like vodka, tequila, gin are going to be better options than darker, um, darker uh, spirits, as well as like sugary drinks, like daiquiris and pina coladas and things. I, I don't think anyone could you, it's explain, kind of like dessert. could you explain why the clearer would be better than the darker? More, there's less to them. Um, they're usually a little, little more refined. So they filtered out a lot of impurities. Um, you know, when I'm thinking about like bourbons and this, those tend to be heavier. Um, they're, they tend to be exposed to more, you know, solvents and things that are processed with. And I think a lot of it's bio-individual. I have friends that can have a couple bourbons at a dinner and they're fine. And so it seems to me that it's, it's really a lot of women that will struggle more with alcohol consumption north of 40. Obviously, if you're at a healthy weight, you're metabolically flexible, you're not insulin resistant, you are going to have a much easier time managing and mitigating alcohol consumption than if you're obese, inflamed, insulin resistant, on high blood pressure medication, et cetera, you know, you probably want to limit uh, how frequently you're consuming alcohol, just because we know that it's processed very differently in the body. It's processed as a toxin. Um, it's going to shut, you know, most of what else you're eating uh, put it into fat storage mode, which I, I think most of us would agree that we want to not be storing fat as often as we are. I'm mm. getting ready to interview an expert in this area where he talks about why certain foods make us fat. And it's because it's, you know, kind of physiologically what happens when we consume fats and carbs together generally don't occur in nature for a reason, um, largely because it's, it's just, they're designed to um, create a surplus. And so, you know, you're always going to do better if you are going to have spirits or a martini, or you're going to have some organic wine, have it with a meal. Don't have it by itself. You're not going to make as good a, a choices when you are, you know, feeling tipsy or feeling a little bit inebriated, you're going to grab the chips and the dessert and things that are, are not going to keep you satiated. That'll keep you continuing to want to eat more and more and more of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Uh, I mean, I don't drink myself. I remember when I was younger. Yeah, I'd, the dr after drinking, it was like, ooh, food. And yeah. the sort of food I was eating, it didn't even qualify as food. I don't even know why they call it food. Food-like substance. Yeah. 
stuff that tastes like food. Right. Um, it doesn't make you feel good for sure. And I think there's, there's like growing awareness. Like I'm finding now when I tell people I don't drink alcohol, it's not as weird. It can be very triggering. Like, I don't know if that's been your experience that I've been to parties. And when, when I tell people I don't drink alcohol, they're like, what, what are you like a teetotaler? And I'm like, no, no, I don't judge people if they want to drink. I just know it doesn't agree with me. And I'd rather just have my sparkling water with a splash of kombucha and I'm totally happy. And no one knows that I'm not drinking something alcoholic. So they generally leave me alone. But I find it fascinating, at least here in the States, there's very much a prevalent drinking culture. And so it can be triggering to other people when you say you don't drink, when you're not even placing judgment on anyone, but you will sometimes be judged for those choices, which I think is so silly. Yeah, yeah. I actually done a video on that one time. Like, it's like people are trying to push drink onto you. Like it's, well, what do you mean? Yeah, have a drink, have a drink. But people won't push drugs on you, but they feel as though alcohol is like fruit juice or something. But what I find is with me, because I look the way I do, people assume I don't drink. Even when I was drinking, people are like, "Oh, you drink? Okay." Um, But yeah, it's it's fine. Like if anyone asks me if I drink and I say no, they're like, "Oh, okay." It's they didn't expect me to drink. So it's um, yeah, it's it's been like that for a long time. If you look a certain way you know, a pretty athletic, let's say, then that's probably the case. What's your, what's your views on lectins and oxalates? I think it really depends on the individual. It's interesting. I literally was having this conversation with someone on Twitter this morning. And I think when your gut is healthy, you can get away with these plant defenses and oxalates are a good example. And, you know, here in the United States, it's really popular to have celery juice and spinach smoothies and kale this and kale that. And so, you know, we call it killer kale because for a lot of people, if they're sensitive to oxalates, it can be really, really hard on their gut. And I'll give you an example. Those plant-based defenses, if you have a healthy gut, may not bother you. When I was in the hospital for 13 days and I almost died, you better believe for a solid 18 months, I couldn't hand, I could not handle most, if not all oxalates. And I could handle a meat-based diet. I did, I did full carnivore for nine months. And anytime I ate something that my digestive system was unhappy about, it let me know. And so I think it's always in the context of someone's gut health and the gut microbiome, because when your, your gut is healthy, you can get away with having, whether it's nuts or kale or celery, seemingly benign things that those are whole foods. They're real foods. They're nutrient dense foods, but in the wrong person can be disruptive for a lot of people. It can cause joint pain, diarrhea, um, and they give them, you know, skin eruptions, they may get hives or they could get, um, you know, hives or um, like psoriasis or even eczema. And so I'm, I'm working with two women right now. And I think they've had years and years and years of their gut microbiome just being completely assaulted that they can't handle very much at all. And so you really have to dial back on the diet. And I think it's really in the context of your N of one, like You might take 20 people and maybe four out of the 20 can't tolerate oxalates or plant lectins or, you know, saponins or any of these plant-based defenses. I always think it's in the context of that individual and the, and what's going on with their gut microbiome. Like three years later, I can eat those things, but not in huge amounts, but I went a solid 18 months. I couldn't even eat a Brussels sprout. And I'm someone that like genuinely likes vegetables. I could not eat anything that had any fiber in it. So I think some of the times it's it's a temporary blip and then sometimes it ends up being permanent, but there are people who are really sensitive to oxalates. Like they will get 
joint pain. I have a woman that gets, um, she has urinary symptoms anytime she uh, has oxalates and, and sometimes benignly, like she doesn't even realize she's consumed them, but her body will definitely let her know. So I, I think it's such an individual, um, it's a great question, but it's one that in my clinical experience has really been very bio-individual. Like you get a bunch of people together and some of them might not even recognize they're having symptoms. Other ones are very symptomatic. Some have no symptoms whatsoever. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So you went on, a, went on a carnivore diet as well for nine months. I did. And that was not, you know, necessarily by choice, but it was the only thing because I had been through so much. Um, I had a ruptured appendix and probably five or six complications. And I actually left the hospital with a ruptured appendix because I was too sick to do surgery on. And when I went home, the only thing I could handle was honest to God, it was literally like boiled meat. It was disgusting. I was so hungry, but I could handle bone broth and like boiled meat. Like you can imagine as someone who genuinely likes to eat, that was really challenging And I remember one night my mom, I think made shrimp and that got my digestive system going. So it it was a very, very careful nine months of being really conscientious of every single thing I put in my mouth. And then it started to get better. And then over time it got better, but I remember it was about 18 months before I could have a Brussels sprout and then being grateful I could eat them again. Yeah, no doubt. Of course. Um, And how did you feel mentally, like emotionally and you know, psychologically eating only a certain, certain types of foods, you know, your neurotransmitters and certain, you know, happy chemicals and all that. Um, I was probably a gigantic hot mess because you have to remember, I left the hospital in March of 2019. I did that talk at the end of March. And then I told my kids, this is great. This summer, we're going to do all these things. And what ended up happening is I wrote an, an, an ebook uh, with Primal Man in April and then May that talk went viral. And it's almost like I wasn't able to process everything that had happened because then my business just accelerated like a freight train. So I would say there were months where I just felt lost because, you know, here I am, I'm a super healthy person. I almost died. And then you're dealing with the fallout from that. And then, you know, your business kind of explodes. And so you're not really dealing with your stuff. And then the pandemic happens and then you got to deal with your stuff. I always say like, it's like reflux. Eventually you got to deal with it. You're going to have to deal with it at some point. So I think in 2020, there was a lot of self-reflection and absolutely like you start to just recognize, are you happy doing exactly what you're doing? Is this serving you well? We picked up and moved. We were just like, we're not even happy living in this area. We just picked up and moved, built a house in another part of the state, much happier where we are now. But I think on a lot of levels, had I not had all that business success, I might've probably dealt with all those feelings, but yeah, being a healthcare provider, being in a hospital bed and realizing you're really freaking sick uh, is pretty horrible uh, because you recognize what could happen. And that was, you know, part of the impetus. It was like, I want to get out and get home to my family. And I want to do this talk because I want to prove to my kids I'm okay. Because it was so scary. I got to a point, I told my husband, you know, when I was aware of it, don't bring the kids to the hospital because my older son was stressed and my younger son was just fascinated. Why is, what's this tube doing that's going down your nose and your stomach? And what's all this stuff coming out? And he loved to look at all the technical things, all these drips and drains and things that were going on. And my older son was just stressed. And I said, don't bring them here. I mean, it's, it's, it's stressing me out watching them look stressed. So we'll just talk by phone. That will be better. Yeah. What would you advise for anyone who's trying to heal their gut? Be patient. <laughs> And I don't say that to be trite. I mean, it, it's a marathon. It's not a race. I, I, unfortunately, I think 
for most of us, it's a journey. And so you really have to give it time and understand that it's not going to be instantaneous. I mean, three years out, I'm still working on gut stuff. I just finally went through a big parasite protocol. I, I went to multiple providers, finally found a provider. The first thing she said to me was, I guarantee you when you were in Morocco, you picked up a parasite and every other test had shown nothing. And so I did this special test. Sure enough, I had two, I just finished a protocol and I said, I think I'm finally three years later, I'm finally getting back to a degree of health that I was at beforehand. So if anyone's listening to this and says, you know, I'm, I'm on this health journey, give it time. We are a very much an instant gratification culture. And I would remind anyone, like you really want to give it time. Like you don't want to rush it. It's not going to happen, you know? And it's interesting. I was just listening to a lecture in between calls and it was talking about the role of like specific sex hormones, like women and men both make estrogen. Let me be clear about that. It's not just women. And it was talking about the, the protective effects of estrogen and progesterone in the gut and how it protects these, these particular type of cells, the enterocytes that in fact, not only the gut microbiome, but immune function and in the context of talking about the pandemic. And so it just reminded me that, you know, we think that we're not all interconnected. And I remind people, especially if you're North of 40, whether you're a male or a female, like really knowing what your hormones are doing, making sure they're, you know, where they should be so that you're optimized. Uh, because I really believe like, had I not been as healthy as I was, I would have died. Like my surgeon who was wonderful said, had you been any other person, a 40 ish year old person, you probably would have died or you would have been in rehab for months. Um, but it, it just goes to show you like the healthier we are, the more resilient we will be and the harder we are to kill. Like that's something I, I fully embrace that it was not my time. Um, but had I been a different person, had I been the average 40 something that's metabolically unhealthy, obese, et cetera, I would not have done as well. I was just tenaciously going to fight to get out of the hospital. But yeah, the gut microbiome, if anyone's having issues, give it time, work with people that really know what they're doing. Um, I, I would argue that that is critically important that you have a team that not only has seen what you have or is has been dealing with what you have, but making sure you're very aligned methodology wise, because a lot of these functional and integrative practices are really expensive. So make sure the investment you're making is going to be worth it long-term. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's good, good information. <laughs> <laughs> So tell us about your new book uh, called Intimate Fasting Transformation. Yeah, so it's exciting. It uh, you know kind of came out of that viral talk in 2019. So it's really looking at women and fasting. And I, I believe it's the consummate expert guide to successfully teach women how to fast, what to look out for. Um, it also has 50 recipes that could be for men or for women, but are very nutrient dense. Um, Beth Lipton, who's an amazing, amazing chef and I work together and there's a lot of carnivore ish, uh, meals in there. So I'm very animal based, very heavy on animal based protein, lots of non-starchy vegetables. And I like a lot of flavor in my meals, uh, but they're also easy to make. That was another thing I didn't want it to, no one wants to spend hours cooking. No one has time to, to spend that much time cooking. So acknowledging and recognizing that the book is really a mapped out plan tells you, you know, talks to you about hormones, talks to you about the things you need to look out for to be successful um, and gives you all sorts of challenges and, and other things that are there. It's like the very best of my content all in a book. It's like having me in a book, 
Uh, so it's a really exciting endeavor and something I'm really proud of, but truly a labor of love amidst a pandemic and two teenagers being at home and being in school. So it's amazing that it all came together. That's awesome. That's awesome. And they're easy uh, meals that you've got in there as well. Yes, absolutely. Like there's a chimichurri, like we love chimichurri. We like very, very flavorful sauces for meats and things like that. And, and everything that's in there has been teenager approved. So there are recipes that both men and women and teenagers will enjoy. My poor kids have been guinea pigged over everything. It's like every recipe we put in the book, I wanted them to try, I wanted them to give their okay on. Um, and also, you know, there's some fun foods and a lot of, a lot of the pre-sale bonuses include, you know, things that are going to up level your experience with IF45, which is the plan in the book. Uh, and there's actually, I think next week we start, we roll out some pre-sale bonuses that include some healthier desserts, which people are always looking for. Mm, yeah, for sure. I have uh, had a genetic test and it said that I am genetically predisposed to love sweet stuff. Oh. <laughs> I do love sweet stuff. I do. It was through um, a DNA company called Circle DNA. Don't know if you've okay. heard of it. They're supposed to be an extremely comprehensive report, which they have one of the most comprehensive reports. I think it's about 500 different stuff they have on there. It was really interesting. I bet. Um, but yeah, I have to try and keep away from it. The moment I my tongue tastes something sweet, that's it. It's all over. Yeah. So um, I have to be very careful. It's hard uh, to moderate. And that's, I oftentimes will say like the recognition that if you can't moderate something, whether it's a cookie or a glass of wine or whatever it is, if you can't moderate, then you eliminate. That's my feeling. Like if you can moderate, then, you know, you can moderate, but there are certain things like I, I, I laugh about this. Like I, as I mentioned, my mom is a great cook and she was a big baker and she used to make the most amazing cookies. And so she would come to visit and what would she do? I'm, I'm going to show my love for my daughter by making these cookies. I was like, no, they're like kryptonite. Cause I can't just eat one. I eat five and then five becomes 10. And then I feel awful. So now I just, there are certain things like any type of flour. I don't anything with flour in it. I just don't eat. Like I'd rather have a piece of dark chocolate. I can moderate that. Yeah. Whereas I cannot moderate a cookie. Like don't even get me a cookie, like a gluten-free cookie. It's dangerous. So much easier just not to eat it. <laughs> so your book is out on the, uh, was it 15th of March? It is. It and it's is. available it's for pre-order, right? It's available for pre-order, Target, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your local bookstore. And it is available in the UK and Canada. We've confirmed that, um, as well as the United States. And so it's it's a really, really exciting time. I'm going to grab me a copy. Thank well, please do. Hmm? Please do. I will. I will. Look, Cynthia, it's been so, so amazing to have you on. Um, I really appreciate it. It's been incredible. Thank you. Thank you. With all your details, I'll put in the show notes. Is there anything extra you'd like to say before we depart? No, thank you for the opportunity to connect with your community and to connect with you outside of Twitter and Instagram. And obviously, um, if this goes out before March 15th, there are a lot of pre-sale bonuses that are available. You just have to go to my website, www.cynthiathurlow.com upload your receipt and you will get access to the pre-sale bonuses, which I promise, I know a lot of people do this. They write a book and they give you a bunch of pre-sale bonuses, which are garbage. Mine are actually all like, we genuinely endeavor to make sure that they were helpful and they would enhance the book experience. Amazing. 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 Thanks again. 
guys make you. get that book <laughs> cynthia you take care now thank you for listening to the roger snipe show podcast it is my goal to find incredible guests who have extraordinary stories or advice education is key the more we learn the more we can also teach it's also about remaining curious and hungry for knowledge to progress all sponsored ads and affiliations are from only reputable brands or companies which i have personally vetted and trust please take advantage of these codes and subscriptions to increase savings on all products if you get a moment I would greatly appreciate a review as this helps to increase visibility and allows me to share with more amazing people just like you. Be phenomenal and stay blessed.